Thank you for being willing to read that one. Would you pray with me again this morning as we come to our preaching? Holy Spirit, we have much to cover this morning from this psalm. Pray that you would help us to understand its main message and show us how it can encourage us thousands of years after it was written, what it means for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was common uh, back when this psalm was written, but also throughout history, you can read about this in, in Roman culture and other cultures throughout history. It was very common back then that after a, a battle had been won or after a war had been won, the winning army with its king and commanders would parade back through the town, have a triumphal entry, you've heard that phrase before, would have a triumphal entry back into their city or into their kingdom. And that's a picture of what we actually get in this psalm this morning. This psalm is a triumphant song. It's a psalm about God's great victory over his enemies and how he as the king has brought his victory into his kingdom so that his citizens, his people, can rejoice. And so what we're going to see from this psalm this morning, the main idea of this psalm, is that the wicked will perish and the righteous will rejoice because of the powerful salvation of the Lord. Let me say that again if you're a note taker. The wicked will perish and the righteous will rejoice because of the powerful salvation of the Lord. And that's actually how I'm going to break down this psalm this morning in those three points. The wicked will perish, point one. The righteous will rejoice, point two. And God's powerful salvation, point three. So if you are a note taker, we provide an outline on the back of your worship guide. Or you can take that in your own notebook if you would like. Write that down and we have an outline to help guide you through that. Now, this psalm does not break down quite as easily sequentially as other psalms have in the past as we preach through. So what I'm going to be doing is as we make our way through each, each point, I'm going to be pulling verses out that fit into that point. So you're going to have to keep along and kind of tag along as we go. So the wicked will perish. That's the first thing we're going to look at this morning. We see this in several places throughout this psalm. The first is in verses 1 through 2. If you look at that, it says, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered. Those who hate him shall flee. Just as smoke is driven away, you shall drive them away. And as wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. This actually recalls words that were written before this psalm was written in Numbers regarding Moses. This psalm was written by David. And several hundred years before that, when Moses led the people out of Egypt, they were given the Ark of the Covenant. And in Numbers chapter 10, verses 33 to 36, it says this. So they set out from the Mount of the Lord a three days journey. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, 
that is the presence of the Lord, the ark and the cloud, when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So David is taking a phrase that Moses, we understand, Moses would have said this every time they packed up camp and they picked up the ark of the Lord and God's presence, which was made known among his people with a pillar of, of fire at night and a cloud by day, whenever that cloud or that pillar started to move, started to rise up and move, that's when Moses and the people knew, okay, it's time to go. It's time to move on. And so this, this pillar, whenever it moved and whenever they packed up and set up camp, Moses would make this proclamation as they began their march. He would say, Arise, O Lord. You can picture that, right? The cloud is rising and taking off. Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. So this was a prayer that Moses would pray as they are making their way through the wilderness. They see the glory and the presence of the Lord ahead of them. And what are they saying? They're saying, Lord, lead us. Lead us past our enemies. Scatter our enemies. Clear the way for us to be, to make a way for us to go through the wilderness. Do you see that? And so that's what David is saying. God will arise. Look at verse 1. He will arise. His enemies will be scattered. They shall be scattered. Those who hate him will flee before him. This is confidence. This is confidence in God's power and his deliverance and his conquering of his enemies. Look at verses 15 now and 16. It says, O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred... O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode, where the Lord will dwell forever. What's going on here? A lot, of the, a lot of these words that show up in these Old Testament passages we don't quite understand. Sometimes I have to look those things up to try to figure out what is this talking about. Well, the mountain of Bashan was actually a mountain that was across the, um, the, the Jordan River on the other side of the land from where Jerusalem was, where the people lived. It was on the other side of Jerusalem, other side of the river of Jordan, and it was a great mountain range. For them at the time, this was before the age of exploration when people discovered Mount Everest and, and uh, all the other mountains that are much higher and that we would say those are the greatest mountains of the world. At that time, for these people, the mountains of Bashan was the greatest mountain range that they knew about. As far as they knew, it was the biggest mountain range in the world. Great peaks, many great peaks. And so this for them was like the, uh, the, the what is, where is, where's Everest? Mind blank. Nepal, but what's the mountain range? Somebody help me. What? Himalayas. Yeah, for them, this is the Himalayas. Man, that's why I'm a pastor and not a geologist or whatever. Okay, here we go. Back to our passage. So this was a big deal. The mountains of Bashan. These are great mountains. And what does he say? Look at verse, te- verse 16. It says, why do you look with hatred? Another way to translate that is envy. Why, O mountains of Bashan, do you look with envy at the mountain that God desired for his abode? What is that talking about? That's talking about Mount Zion, the place 
where God has chosen His dwelling. Jerusalem, the place where God dwells among His people. In other words, what's going on here is David saying, those great mountains that you see over there, yeah, they're big, they're glorious, they make you go, wow. But where God is, is even better. Those mountains, the Himalayas, Mount Everest, if God is not present there, they are jealous of where God chooses to dwell among His people. The enemies of God, those places where God does not dwell, will one day be jealous of where God has chosen to make His presence known. God does this by clearing the way of the enemies. Look at verse 21. But God will strike the heads of His enemies, the hairy crown of Him who walks in His ways. This is, again, this is kind of Old Testament language that we don't quite understand. What, what is this saying? God will strike the heads of His enemies. That means heads are going to roll. In modern day language, heads are going to roll. God is going to knock the heads off of his enemies. He, he, is, he is a skull crusher. That's what it says. That's the literal image we get. That's some strong language about our God, isn't it? But his enemies, they will be scattered. They will be defeated. And then look at verses 30 and 31. I told you we were going to be jumping around. Rebuke the beast that dwell among the reeds. That's a picture of, of a lion hiding, ready to pounce. Rebuke the beast that hides among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the people. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. So in this first point, what we get is a picture, an image of God defeating his enemies. One of the visualizations we get is actually of candles melting before a fire. If you've ever had, anybody ever stored candles in the attic? Doesn't go well, does it? <laughs> anybody accidentally, you know, put your Christmas candles up there with all the Christmas decoration and the next year you pull it out and there it is all over your wreaths and everything. The wax has melted from the heat. Candles don't do well with heat, do they? They melt. And that's the picture we get of God's enemies. The strongest of those who oppose the Lord will one day melt before His glory. You know, all of us are going to melt before the Lord one way or another. We're either going to melt in humble repentance before His glory, or we're going to melt in judgment before His glory. But that's a promise of God. That he will be a conquering, triumphant king against his enemies. Look at the way many of these enemies are described. It says they're wicked. They hate God. They are his enemies. They walk in guilty ways. And before we move on, unless we look at this passage and start thinking about, yeah, God's going to get those people. This is describing us. Every single one of us, before coming to know the Lord, Ephesians 2 says, we walked in transgressions and sins. We followed the prince of this world. I'm going to read for you later on, Romans 5, that says, we were the enemies of God. 
And so do you see yourself as, a, as that this morning? Or have you seen yourself as that in the past? The very ones that the Bible says, unless God makes his mercy known to us, we are his enemies. We are the ones who oppose him. I don't know about you, but I've seen a few responses of people since the Supreme Court passed the law that reversed Roe v. Wade. And there has been some very strong, what I would describe as wicked responses. And one day, people who stand willingly in rebellion against the Lord are going to melt before him. And so we have a choice even now as we see these things in the news and we see these responses on social media, we have a choice to sit in disgust and in judgment thinking those people are so evil. Or we could respond by saying, but for the grace of God, that could be me. But for the grace of God making known his salvation to me, that is me. And then we have pity on them. We have mercy that says, Lord, reveal your truth to their hearts. Because if they don't repent now, in melting in humility before you now, they will melt before your glorious judgment. That should sober us, not make us proud, but sober us for those who are willingly defying the Lord. Amen? So that's the first thing we see is that the wicked will perish. The second thing we see is that the righteous will rejoice. We see this in verses 3 through 4. First, it says, But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. And then look at verses uh, 32 to 33. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. Selah. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. What's the promise for God's people? We will rejoice. We can rejoice now because he has made his salvation known to us, but we will rejoice forever in heaven one day. Now, how did I just go from saying that all of you are and were the enemies of God to now saying we are righteous? How does that happen? We, we just acknowledge we are the wicked ones. We are the enemies of God. We are those whose God's wrath will be poured out on unless, what? Unless we repent and God makes his mercy known to us through his son, Jesus Christ. What the gospel says, the good news of Jesus says, is that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That he, by his grace, justifies us. What does it mean to be justified? It means to be declared righteous. Not by anything that we have done, but only by faith in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That when Jesus was nailed to the cross, his grace poured out 
on all those who would believe so that by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we could be declared righteous. We just read that in Romans 3, right? We just read, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace. We are declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. I just said I was going to read for you Romans 5. I was going to save it for the third point, but I'm going to read it now. Romans 5, 6 through 11 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for who? For the good people? For the churchgoers? No, he died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice. There it is, rejoicing. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. What does Romans 5 say? I think Romans 5 is actually just a sermon based on Psalm 68. Don't quote me on that because that's probably bad uh, bibliops, bibli, whatever. Um, exegesis is the word I was looking for. But what is Romans 5 saying? It's saying that while we were sinners, while we were ungodly, while we were his enemies, that sounds like point one, doesn't it? While we were the wicked, Christ died for us. He reconciles his enemies to himself. He forgives and brings back into relationship those who are re rebellious against him. And so the good news for those who are in Christ is that we will rejoice. Again, look at some of those words. It says we will be glad. We will exult. We will be jubilant with joy. Don't you love that phrase? Jubilant with joy. An English teacher would say that's redundant. But that's the point. We will be overflowing with joy. We will sing praises to our God. Why? Because he has taken the orphans. That's the language we get here. He's taken orphans and made them his own. He's adopted them by faith. That's what Romans 8 says. We've received the spirit of sonship. The spirit of adoption who cries out, what? Abba, Father. We get to call God what Jesus called his father, Abba. Because he has made us sons of God through faith. The daughters have a father. The sons have a father. Those who were homeless, this is a neat picture. Go to um, verse 5 and 6. It says, the father of the fatherless... The protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. That, that phrase, the solitary, that's talking about those who are homeless, those who are out on their own, who are living on the streets. 
God settles the homeless in a home. He leads out prisoners to prosperity. And he makes the rebellious dwell in a parched land. This is our God who has brought us into his people. So for those who are righteous, not in and of yourselves, but through faith in Jesus Christ, he can cause us to rejoice. And the Bible says we can rejoice even in our suffering, even while we're still facing our enemies, because the enemies of God are the enemies of God's people. We are to love our enemies, right? But they're still our enemies because they hate God. And as haters of God, they hate God's people. But we love in light of that. Helen Berhani, I think that's how you pronounce it. Helen Berhani, I just heard her testimony this past week. I listened to a podcast put out by Voice of the Martyrs. I've mentioned that before. And the, the past two weeks, they interviewed her. She was tortured, literally tortured, for being a believer of Christ in Eritrea. I think that's how you say it. It's in East Africa. So here, here's how they imprisoned her. She was in prison for 32 months. And they kept her in a metal shipping container. You're familiar with metal shipping containers. You see them going down on trucks and on trains, and uh, they're at the cargo bays in the ports. Well, one of these metal shipping containers is where they would put their prisoners, oftentimes believers, Christians. And she was put in a shipping container. She said at times there would be 23 or 24 people in there. And you can imagine, I'm not going to go into all the details, but it was not sanitary. There was not a bathroom there. They would provide them with a bucket that they would empty every once in a while. And during the day, it would be unbelievably hot. People would die from uh, dehydration and from overheating during the day. And then at night, it was unbelievably cold. And so there was hypothermia at times. And bugs would come in through the open parts, the cracks in the floor. Bugs, and they would get sores and maggots. And then they would be tortured. They would be beat and at times, Helen was actually targeted as an example to other believers. They would target her so that others would see what they were doing to her. And in fear, maybe they would not pursue Christ as she would. But through all of this, Helen, who before she was put into prison, was a worship leader in her church. And through all of this torturing and, and suffering, she sang she would sing in the shipping container and others would sing with her and at times she would actually write letters she wrote letters to other prisoners and she wrote letters to the guards and one time a guard came and they noticed her letters and they they noticed there was scripture all throughout her letters and they said where where's the bible where did you hide the bible we know you have one and she said no i don't have a bible well where are you getting all this scripture she said, it's in my head. They said, okay, then we're going to beat it out of you. And they would beat her head. And there were times when they would beat her so much that they would not stop until they got tired. And then they would stop. And she said through all of this in her interview, she said through all of this, God miraculously gave me joy. He enabled me to love them. I truly loved them. 
And she said, and I'm thankful for them. You know why? Because every time they beat me, she said, I felt like a nail. And I felt like they were beating me further and further into my God. That every time they beat me, I was being driven deeper into relationship with him. And my grasp on him was that much stronger. Wow. <laughs> she actually said, I thank them and I bless them. Because of them, I'm closer to Christ today. That is rejoicing even in your suffering amongst your enemies. And, and, and the only way to be in that type of position, Helen actually said this, was to identify with Christ himself. She said, it also made me more thankful of what Christ went through for me. That he was beat, he was tortured, he suffered, and daily I would sing praises of thanks to him for his life and death for me on the cross. That is rejoicing amongst your enemies. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10 says this, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That sounds like Helen's testimony, doesn't it? So the righteous will rejoice. The wicked will perish. The righteous will rejoice. Why? Well, we've already hinted at this, but because of God's powerful salvation. God is the righteous judge who will judge the rebellious. He's the one who provides everything. And here it says he's the giver of rain. He's the God of Sinai where he made his powerful presence known. He's the one who shakes the earth. He's the earth quaker. He is the head breaker as we've seen. He's the blood spiller, the mountain maker, and the mountain mover. Think of the mountains of Bashan who who are jealous of God's presence. He's the king of thousand thousands. That phrase is actually really hard to translate into English because everybody wants to make sure it fits grammatically with our language. But it's literally a thousand thousands. God is the, the commander of a great army of hosts. He's the Lord of hosts. He is the one who rides his chariot in victory he is the commander and the victorious king of the, the procession and the parade. And he is the fountain of life for his people, the God of Israel, and the covenant deliverer. These are all phrases and, and images that we get of God in this passage. And so what we see is that his salvation is powerful. Because God is a God of power, he makes his power and his glory known through his salvation of his people by defeating his enemies and by bringing us to victory. At one point it says um, that the women, look at verses, let's see, where was this? I forgot to mark this. Um, let me find it real quick, sorry. It says the women will divide up the spoils. I forget what verse that is. 
Somebody shout it out if they find it. Um, but it says, the women will divide up the spoils. Why is that an important image? What is that trying to say? Well, I don't, I don't intend this to be misogynistic, but back then, the women didn't go to war. They stayed home. The men and, and the army would go out and they would fight, and the women and children would stay home just waiting to know what the result was going to be. Sometimes they would wait days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months to know what's going to be the result. How are they doing? How's the army doing? How are the men doing? And then when they would come back in victory, they would come in this parade and they would bring singers, they would bring musicians, and they would sing triumphantly, but then they would have horses and those horses would be pulling carts and on those carts would be all the spoils, all the treasures, all the things that had been taken from their defeated enemies. And they would bring that into the city. And then the picture we get here is that the women will start dividing up the spoils. So what is that a picture of? Well, literally, it's a picture that we, as God's people, get to share in his victory that we benefit though we have done nothing. We have done nothing for our salvation. We have done nothing to earn favor with God. He won the victory for us, but we get to share in the benefits. Do you see that? Literally, Christ died for us. His righteousness is credited to us not based on anything that we do. It's only by grace. We get to share in the inheritance. We get a share of the kingdom of God in heaven one day, and we get all the blessings of the gospel, not based on anything that we have done, but all by God's saving power through Jesus Christ. We are the ones who get to share in the spoils of salvation. Isn't that a neat picture? Isn't that good news for those who trust in Christ? So then what do, we, what do we do with all of the, you know, the wicked will perish, the righteous will rejoice because of God's powerful salvation? What difference would this make in our lives? Well, a few things. First, again, is to remember that God will have justice. You know, we, we see our world that is riddled by sin, that is riddled by enemies of God. We see devastating things going on all over the nation and all over the world in the news. And if that question does not come to your mind, Lord, why? Then you're not paying attention. And if you don't have with other psalms that often say, how long, O Lord, how long will you tarry? And so the promise of this psalm is that God will come in judgment on the wicked. And justice will be accomplished forever. That's a promise that we can trust that God will come in justice. So then what do we do in the meantime? <laughs> what do we do while he tarries, while he waits? What do we do? Well, we trust him. But we also acknowledge in, in Romans 2, Paul is writing to people, and he asks the same questions. 
Why does God wait? Why does God not come in judgment? And he says it's because of his kindness. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. In other words, if God were to have come 50 years ago, let me actually, I'm going to add a few more. 100 years ago, if he had come back in judgment 100 years ago, you and I would not be able to rejoice in heaven. We would not be here to enjoy that gift, right? So you think people 100 years ago were asking, Lord, when are you coming back? You think people 100 years ago or 200 or 300 were thinking, Lord, how long? Why are you allowing these things to happen? And the Romans 2 says he waits in kindness until all of his people, all of the elect, have been saved. So part of his reason for waiting is to bring the full number of his elect to salvation. So the, that's, that's exact Bible language, by the way. So don't get mad at me for saying that. <laughs> that's exact Bible language. He waits until the full number of his elect have been saved. It's God's mercy that he waits to bring judgment. But he will bring judgment. The other promise is, again, of the gospel. Anyone who believes will be saved. John 3.16 how about we, can, can we say that together? John 3, 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What does this psalm say? This psalm says that the wicked will perish. John three sixteen says whoever believes in Jesus Christ, God's son, will not perish but will have everlasting life. They will rejoice. You know, sometimes we have a hard time reconciling God's judgment with God's mercy, God's wrath on sin with His grace. But the easiest way to see that is by looking at the cross. Because if you look at the cross of Christ, that's where all of God's characteristics meet at one moment. One, one theologian said, the cross is where God's judgment and God's mercy kiss. It's literally where all of God's wrath is fully satisfied, and at the same time, his righteous mercy, his loving grace, and his forgiveness is fully on display in Jesus Christ. So look to Jesus, look to the cross, where the full glory of God is put on display for us. Would you pray for me? Pray with me? You can pray for me, too. Pray with me. Lord, we praise you and we thank you that you are a righteous judge. You are the Lord of creation. You are the king and the commander of thousand thousands. You are the one who re will return in victory. Jesus, you are the returning king. You will conquer your enemies to the very last. And you will bring justice forever. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for your kindness that is leading people to forgiveness. And we thank you that you have promised to bring all those that you choose to save to saving faith in Christ. That the full number of your elect will be saved by faith in Jesus. And we thank you that for those of us who are in Christ, we get to share in that victory. We thank you, God, for your powerful salvation made known to us 
ultimately in Jesus Christ and that all of this is by grace through faith in him alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.